Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this amazing episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek and science contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 21 and 22 from 1979. Special guests on this episode include... Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss the Trek report, including the latest news about the widescreen motion picture. Drew Maurer reflects on Venus, the cloudy planet. Keith, Allen, Charles, and Veronica discuss the Hugo Awards. Bob Vossler and Stephen Lance consider the Trek report, including what it was like to be an extra in the motion picture. Also, how the Enterprise influenced Battlestar Galactica Bridge, the DragonCon 2021 Trek Trek report, the Lost in Space Star Trek connection, and more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of StarPod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending and presenting a panel at Clarksville Con on October 23rd in Clarksville, Tennessee. Music City Multicon is October 29th through 31st in Lebanon, Tennessee. We will be there. Starbase Indy is the fan-run Star Trek convention held each year on Thanksgiving weekend. Its mission? To celebrate Star Trek's vision of the future by promoting humanitarianism and STEM education. Now, we have to say, this is a convention we go to every year, and it's like a blast from the past. It's like what conven- conventions used to be like decades ago when, when it was just a small group of fans obsessing over Trek. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a smaller con, and they have, they, they have a lot of different panels, and they have the guests, and the, the Star Trek guests usually walk around the con and talk to people, and, and it's more of a family-friendly convention, and everybody just gets together and has fun, and we see a lot of our friends there. And that's our geek Thanksgiving tradition. In fact, we call it Trexgiving because we always have dinner together on Thanksgiving with other Star Trek nutcases like us. Yeah, we see a lot of friends there and, and just trek out. Starlog Magazine, issue number 21, cover date April 1979. Log entries. NASA's plans for 1979. NASA's activities in 1979 will include the first launch and orbital flight of the crew-carrying space shuttle, Jupiter and Saturn encounters by two Voyager spacecraft, and a flyby of the rings of Saturn by the Pioneer 11 spacecraft. So if we remember early on, the Enterprise space shuttle didn't actually go into orbit space. It was simply a test. But now, by 1979, there will be an actual manned 
space flight with the shuttle. And this orbital flight is scheduled for September 28th. And there's more flights planned uh, from the space program going forward. So this is when they really started to, to bump it up and have more flights actually going into space. Yes. I mean, it took this long after, like after the first moon landing, which was in 69, and now 10 years later, and, and they're, like, they're getting this started in, with more, with more space flights. Many more operations as well, because it mentions that three launch sites will be used by NASA. That is Cape Canaveral, Florida, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and Walps Island, Virginia. Ellison Bound, illustrated in 3D. Illustration and full-color art have long been an integral part of modern science fiction literature. Lately, however, words and pictures have merged even closer together within the genre, creating a new and exciting hybrid, graphically illustrated science fiction. Baronet Publishing, in cooperation with Byron Pre's Visual Publications, has recently released one of the most impressive volumes yet to emerge from this burgeoning field, the illustrated Harlan Ellison. Now, Star Trek fans know Harlan Ellison from City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, the uh, notorious writer who wrote that one episode for Star Trek. The funny thing is, this is discussing which in the late 70s was becoming a thing. They didn't have a term for it, but modern days we call it graphic novels. But at the time, this was a new concept, taking graphic images and combining them with more adult-themed text. And sometimes you'll have caption balloons in there, very comic book style. But this was a graphic adaption of Harlan Ellison's most notorious works. And the funny thing is, one of our roommates at DragonCon brought this volume with him. And this was our first time seeing it. And we're like, oh my god, this is it. This is the Harlan Ellison graphic novel that came out in 79 and it just so happened to be talking about this being released in this issue of Starlog magazine yeah it was really cool because harlan ellison you know that he was a known science fiction writer and had this great imagination so to see someone actually do artwork from it and bring it to life that way it was beautiful and i think that's one of the fun things about reading Starlog magazine is that you see the roots of what we take for granted now, what is normally in bookstores, uh, what is common in libraries, this was niche back in the day. This was something that only geeks like us who, who read Starlog would have access to and, and would have knowledge about. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. We are of the uh, podcast 70s Trek, and today uh, we're happy to help out the good folks at Star Pod Log, talk about Star Log issue twenty one and the Star Trek report in there from April nineteen seventy nine, and we believe it was probably written around November or December nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, that was a crazy time. Oh yeah, November. I mean, the biggest thing. I mean, there was a lot going on in November seventy eight. Um, but one of the things that I remember distinctly was Jonestown and and that was what 900 and some people that were killed or committed suicide all because of that crazy guy. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that began to show people the extent or the power that a cult had over individuals 
And, you know, we all use this phrase today, oh, he's just drinking the Kool-Aid, meaning he's right. bought into it 100%. But it all goes back to this moment in time. Yes, it does. Because they literally drank Kool-Aid with poison in it and committed suicide. Right. Or was forced to drink it. Or was forced to drink it one way or the other. Right. Okay. Well, hey, this was a really positive thing to start this little segment yeah. off with. On an up note. What else was going on? Hey, let's talk about some movies for a second. You know, top yeah. movies released in April 79 when this issue came out was the movie Manhattan. I have to admit, I don't know that I ever saw this movie. Did, did you? No, I cannot recall it. And then there was this also this little indie low budget movie that, that probably nobody ever heard of. I, I even hesitate to say anything about it. It was called Mad Max. Small movie, no big deal. Yeah, very Maybe. inconsequential. Australian movie. Yes, nothing important. No, nor nor nobody ever heard of the the lead actor in that movie. No, nobody ever Mel, heard of. What was Mel, his name? Mel something. Mel, Gib, Gibbs Gibson. Mel, Mel Brooks. Mel, Mel Brooks, Gibson. Yeah. Anyway, it, yeah. Hey, it's pretty cool. Buck Rogers is on the cover of this one, looking pretty pretty good. Way to go, yes. Gil. Yes. Um, there's some really good articles in this. Uh, of course, we're not going to talk about them all, but, you know, there's a cool interview with Mark Hamill. There's a preview of the Superman, the movie, movie of, uh, I should say, not a preview, but an article about the premiere. Of course, that happened okay. in December 78, about the time yes. this all was written. Um, an article about the building of the Galactica Bridge set. Ooh. And I thought this was cool because Starlock did this a lot. It would have a real science kind of article in there. There's a, a an article about the Pioneer Space Probe and its encounter right. with Venus. But getting geeky, there's a cool article about Lost in Space in this issue and an a episode guide. Very cool. Pre-internet days. Right. Unless you were writing down episodes at home yourself and keeping them in in your school, you know, three ring binder. You had no idea what really the, a list of episodes were. So here is Starlog giving fans of that show an episode guide. And they did that for Star Trek when Starlog first launched. If you remember, yes. there was a yes, complete Trek episode guide. Yeah. When didn't they do it for the animated? They probably too. did. Yeah, they probably did. And then there's an uh, article about George Romero and Buck Rogers, the movie. And then, of course, Star Trek Report by Susan Sackett. Yes. What did you think of, of this one, how it started off? Um, well, I think her little quote under the, the picture says it all. Condition green on Star Trek movie. So yep. it's it was very upbeat and, you know, seems like they're getting close to the end of at least principal photography. So, yeah, I thought it was neat. She started by describing a football party hosted yes. by Shatner and Nimoy at the at Paramount's Cafe Continental. Um, where about 350 attendees were, you know, having pregame drinks and some food. And it hit me. We're back in 1979. This was probably before tailgating had become really popular. 
And so rather than go to the stadium and, and have a Star Trek tailgate, they right. were doing it at Paramount's Just, Cafe. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, and I thought it was interesting, too, that they had deemed it the Shatner Nimoy Day, they December had. 17th. 1978. It's funny how we just don't remember it that way anymore. Uh, no. no I think from now on, we're going to remember December 17th as Shatner Nimoy Day. I have, an, I have a, another association of that day, which I can't forget. So, Yes, our, you do. Our anniversary. That's right. Not not our anniversary, but well, his wife, like it was. Kelly's and his wife's anniversary. Yes. But I was honored to be there. That was a fun day. Yeah, it was. Hey, in case anybody's wondering, the Los Angeles Rams beat the Packers that day, 31 to 14. Right. So, I think they were excited about that. Big day for those um, those Ram fans. Um, principal photography, uh, she even says, is nearly complete. And Bob Wise and Gene Roddenberry then later on hosted another party. So there's lots of parties in this Star Trek yeah. report, a Christmas party and balloons at the party read Merry Christmas from Bob and Jean. So um, I think people are beginning to see the light at the, the end of the tunnel. They're beginning to loosen up a little bit and have some fun. And yes. uh, Susan also noted that shots on the enterprise, the enterprise sets, I should say, are done. Yeah, and, they're done. And she says the sets are being salvaged so they can be used later for sequels. Right. Which would nice. a better word be preserved rather um, than so, salvage? That sounds like they're already in the trash can, but we're pulling them back out. Somebody's dumpster diving to grab those. That's, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. It does. Oh, crap. Don't throw away the captain's chair. Wait a minute. We need, I need that. to salvage that. Yeah, that's just I'm just being picky. <laughs> well, I thought it was odd wording as well. So. In uh, in this article, she notes that a total of seven sound stages. We talked about five in the previous or in, a, in an issue, a few uh, issues back in 19. She talked about five sound stages, but I think they had to expand that to seven. And that that's more sound stages used for the motion picture than had been used on any other movie at Paramount before. That's a and big, big production. When it was five, it was, you know, the, the largest number, almost the largest number, but still a big seven. Production. Yep. Yeah. Seven. That's incredible. Um, I like it, how, um, how they talked about, the science advisor yes. for California, for Governor uh, Jerry Brown at the time, he was brought on set uh, to help Gene and, and Bob, you know, figure out how do you do the spacewalk stuff? Of course, that's former astronaut Rusty Swikert. Right. And what's notable about Swikert is he flew on Apollo 9. Yes. And he is the first astronaut in the Apollo program to go out and do a spacewalk. Not the first American to do a spacewalk, but the first one to do it in the Apollo program. Yes. So, gee, when he's saying, you know, it doesn't look quite right the way you got Shatner floating over there, you have to take his word for it. He knows. Right. Got an expert. 
I don't think Shatner should be hanging quite that way. <laughs> it looks like he's hanging from a rope. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> he's swinging back and forth. We just don't do that in space. Okay. I, I digress. Um, the yes. production is also taking steps to create a Klingon language. Yeah. Because obviously we've got some brand new Klingons who look a little bit different and, um, we want to make sure that the Klingons have their own language this time around. So that's kind of neat. Obviously what hadn't happened yet is the language had, you know, had not been developed at this time because we know that one of the Trek actors plays a role in that James Doohan. Yes. Yeah. And I think she probably will mention that later on down the road. I don't know that, but I'm going to guess. Yeah. Maybe possibly. Susan also talked about merch. There's merch coming. Yeah. Lots and lots of merchandise is associated with the motion picture. She just talks about a few things here. Why don't you tell us a couple of things, Cal, that she's talking well, about? She, the one that, you know, geeky, you and I were excited about were um, movie props. Dick Rubin's movie props. Heck yeah. Were being... Um, reproduced by Milton Bradley. The board game company was reproducing movie props. I was struck by that. Were you? I, yeah. So I was like, wait, are, are they going to be really small and on a game board? <laughs> right. Is it like How's Monopoly gonna, pieces? How's this going to work again? And and did Milton Bradley end up producing any? To, I can't remember if, that they did. I, I don't recall that they did i mean in 70s trek we talked about right all that produced. Merch. yeah and, and i don't think any of other than a game there was a game by right, milton there bradley. was a game yeah right because that's what milton bradley does but i don't think there was any merch so any reproduction of props anyway anyway yeah. anyway yeah. um gene's writing the book it's the yeah. novelization of the motion picture and so that's right. coming soon. And there's been a new, a new contract signed with Pocket Books. Yes. And uh, Susan is telling us that along with Gene's book, there's also going to be a book about the making of the motion picture, tentatively titled "Remaking mm -hmm. the Remaking of Star Trek," which I thought was kind of cool. That's a nod to the to the uh, Stephen Whitfield 1968 book, "The Making of Star Trek." Of Star Trek, right? Yeah. So that's kind of cool. I didn't put that together until you just said that. Huh. I'm here to connect the dots for you. Thanks. I need them connected. Happy to do that. No problem. She also mentioned that there might be a couple other books coming out in 79. I don't know if you picked up on this. Uh, she says, yeah. quote, a collection of sayings from original dialogue in the 79 Star Trek television episodes. Do you, uh, I'm, I'm being that. sincere. Right. I didn't remember it either. I don't know if it got past me. I don't remember seeing that. So there was Maybe that. It was a limited run. I don't know. I don't know. Or just certain people got it. I don't, yeah, I don't know. The, the next the other, one is cool. The next one go is ahead. a really good idea. Yeah, no, you go yeah. ahead. Well, so it's a, a book that is covering the history of space flight from the 20th century all the way through Star Trek's um, latest model of the Enterprise. I don't remember that either. 
don't either. But I would. That would have been a great. That. I would have bought that. Absolutely, that would have been a great book. It would have been. What the heck? I know. Where? I guess we got to go look for it. I, I, maybe something. I guess like that idea sort of morphed into the chronology book that they did in the nineties, like later yeah, on. I, but heck, that would have been a great offering at this time. And definitely it would have been not only good for Star Trek, but also for NASA. Right. Heck yeah. You know what they're not talking about? They're not talking about the Spock decanter. I miss the Spock decanter. The Spock decanter. Come on. Who doesn't want to pour libations from Spock's head? Well, you got to take his head off. Oh, that's right. His head is the is the stopper. Yeah. The cork or whatever. Well, that's even worse Then you have to behead Spock to get a drink. I don't want to do that, but he's a Vulcan. So you can just pop that head right back on. (laughs) He's fine. Uh, Wrapping up the, uh, the star Trek report here for this issue. Susan also announced that Jimmy Doohan has become a father again to a baby boy, Thomas Patrick Doohan. And then she also talked about David Gautreaux. Well, so let's back up and sure. So she also she you know mentions his first son, the two year old son, Eric Montgomery. Mm-hmm. I wonder if. Uh, oh come on, how could it not be? Right, Montgomery Scott. That's what I mean. How could it not be related to Scotty? It has to be. But All I right. kind of like. I did. I didn't know that. His son was named after his character. I didn't know that either until I read it there, too. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, 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 it has to be. It has to be. The only thing he didn't do was name one of his sons Scott. Yeah. Well, I think his wife took control over That's enough. We're not doing that. (laughs) You're going too far. Okay. What's the next point here? Let's move on. So Susan also talked about David Gautreaux, and and he had just been signed to play a role in the motion picture. Now, David is the actor who was originally signed to play Zahn, which was Spock's replacement for Phase 2, the canceled TV series that came right before the motion picture. Yes. So obviously when Phase 2 got canceled, David was out of a job. And you know how, did you notice how I keep saying his first name and not his last name? Yes. Yes. I don't know if I can pronounce it again. I'm just glad you pronounced it, not me. But it's great that he, he got a job. You know, he was the um, base commander that right. uh, when V'ger comes in and it's destroying this base and they're all on the wreck deck watching that, he's that commander of that station. And so he at least he was able to get that that role and, and have a part in yeah. the motion picture. You know, what's a real shame though, is we never see him again. No, we never see him again. Well, didn't uh, that space station get destroyed? Obviously he died. His character died. So, but he could have been brought back as a different character at a different sure. time. And you know, that would have been nice. I liked how she, uh, he, she, I don't know if this was good or not, but she says, uh, so the special Vulcaneers that that were uh, personally tailored for him, they'll have to stay on the shelf. Right. Like, so there. 
And they're David. still there with a little spider web and some dust on them. And... Right. Sagging one. The yes, little right. point sagging a bit. Just, just kind of tilting to the <laughs> side. Susan also tells us about Leonard Nimoy's assistant. Her name was Teresa Victor, and she broke her heel during uh, principal photography. But she makes a nice little joke here. She says that she ended up with a cast that was signed by a cast, the cast of the motion picture, picture. which was pretty cute. Yes. And the last thing she talks about in this particular issue is Paramount had recently sent theater owners promotional packets to get them interested in purchasing and showing the motion picture, which would be in December 1979. So all of this is beginning beginning to become real at the time this article is written principal photography is about to be wrapped they're going to go into post-production they're looking forward to getting those uh, optical effects those special effects and having a moving ready for december a lot going on there there is a lot going on there yes yep yep any final thoughts on your part well they had lots of parties (laughs) <laughs> and the cast could sign a cast. Well, there you go. That's all you need. The Galactica Bridge Set. Captain Kirk, you're needed on the bridge. Lieutenant Starbuck, report to the bridge. All right, this is an article about Battlestar Galactica building the bridge for the TV series. And they fully admit that the most iconic bridge of all time in science fiction was the Starship Enterprises bridge. Yeah, I mean, anytime someone says bridge, that's what I think of is the one from Star Trek. And so on Battlestar Galactica, they, they had that in mind, according to this article, but they, you know, they wanted to make it different. They didn't want to look like they copied Star Trek, but they did have, they, but they were thinking, okay, bridge was originally from Star Trek. And the fact that they, said because anytime makes an announcement about a bridge just just like we just did right now that which was quoted in the article people's minds are going to go to star trek so what could they do to make their bridge just a little bit different because the producers admitted that the star trek bridge is the perfect setup yeah having the captain in the middle and facing the view screen and the other people around him so yes yeah, so this one they made it egg shaped and they were trying to set it up so they could film it as needed. Which was interesting. So it wasn't a perfect circle. They needed to stretch it out a little bit. And also, they said, since the Star Trek bridge is super smooth, we need to counter that. We need to make a lot of greebles and bumps on ours. Yeah, yeah. So definitely these these ideas on how to make it different. I know on Star Trek, they said it was it was kind of hard to film on that bridge because it had the different levels. So, so something that was that was one level would would was easier to do. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But I think it's funny that even in areas that we don't think that Star Trek might have an influence, at the core, Star Trek oftentimes is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's something that um that they they had to compare it to because it did set a standard. Drew Maurer. This is in the article 
Pioneer Venus Close Encounters with a Cloudy Planet. One of the Pioneer class probes that we had first sent up December 9th in the 70s. The satellites made it, made it to Venus. Meanwhile, the secondary, the bus satellite, had launched several probes to enter the planet surface. They were designed to crash and they would at least get atmospheric information. NASA was very, not, not really counting on too much more. One of the first things they discovered was uh, primordial organ gas in the Venus atmosphere. That was something completely unexpected, and it says that the planet is much younger than one would assume following standard historical information. Then they decided we're going to put some information together from the one probe that made it not only to the surface, but continued to broadcast for one hour before its batteries and the 847-degree deep Fahrenheit weather fried it, but it was a bonus. So one of the things I found fascinating about the article, even this many years after reading it the first time, because I did have this this edition, it's it still talks about temperatures. I mean, you start from a small spot that is considered warm for years, or actually on the cool side, 68, 74 degrees, it's fine, it's nice, it's not that bad. But only lasts for a very short period of time, and then you hit something where you, the temperature literally rises from the sulfuric blanket. Basically, it's like wearing a coat. Outside is 68 degrees, inside is 590, and it gets hotter as you get closer. And that 590 is like a seven-mile deep crevasse. <laughs> 12 miles above the surface, the light becomes reddish, and that's because uh, sulfur turns light into a reddish tint. Uh, six miles near the surface, the light is very red. Illumination is gloomy, and that's because it's overly diffused by the atmospheric belt. Uh, and by then, it's a little over 770 degrees. That stays that way for four miles high. The surface features become more visible. Uh, it's like looking through a murky, like looking through red jello that hasn't quite blended properly. You'll see some parts that you can't really see through. It's kind of a murky, yucky looking. You know. And at, at that point, it reaches the 850 degrees. And that's not to give you a tan plus. You get a slight distortion in landmarks. Uh, visibility at that point is only about three miles in any direction. The terrain, relatively flat, but the, and there's a fine layer of reddish dust uh, scattered amongst the rocks. You know, and they all look very weathered. You know, Venus, one thing we do know is that Venus is surrounded by some very high force winds. They are n never really truly still. Uh, probes landing on the night side observed that uh, there were glowing fires and it is presumed, until we can actually prove it, that sulfur compounds on the surface are ignited by, then cause chemical fires in the eerie glow. Another possibility is that the glow may have been caused by an intensely heated surface of the space, the other spacecrafts when they were put through. Nobody is proposing that there's uh, friendly Venetians lighting, you know, welcoming beacons. Uh, the Pioneer Venus project 
was intense, and for Earth, it showed that that human beings we are still on a quest to learn. Uh, this is this is a quest I think that we all need to learn. Is we need to learn, but we need to learn together. We we need to work together to make these amazing things happen. There were a few photographs, not many, that survived. A year on Venus is approximately eight months on Earth, and that's because the sun actually gets between the Earth and Venus, and it prevents any transmissions because everything that comes through is basically garbled, like early 50s television. You know, we are hoping that more information is yet to come. So far, no one has as specifically recorded that others have co- that more information has been obtained, at least not that I've read beyond what this article states. What I found impressive is that the article itself was so well written. They included a diagram of the spacecraft, the spacecraft, the bus satellite that held the, the landing probes, an artist's rendition of the the surface, you know, it's more like little valleys. It's like waves of just hard hard dust soil. I hope you would uh, seek information and help others seek information. Mingo presents the Star Trek Universe's new line of 14-inch action figures. Captain James T. Kirk, Earthman. 14-inch Mingo figures. Commander Spock. Vulcan Science Officer, 14-inch Mebo figures, the Gorn, a feared enemy of the Federation, 14-inch Mebo figures, 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories, start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. Lost in Space lives. In the summer of 1964, a producer named Gene Roddenberry brought a science fiction concept to the executive offices of CBS Television. For two hours, he sought to convince them that a science fiction series could appeal to a mass audience and be produced within a reasonable budget. Then, according to Stephen E. Whitfield in the Ballantine paperback, The Making of Star Trek, the meeting went like this. At the end of the two hours, and after having been questioned closely by most of those present, He, Gene, thought he had sold them. Then they said, Thank you very much. We have one of our own that we like better, but we appreciate your coming in. Alright, isn't that wild? That early on, CBS rejected Gene Roddenberry's idea. Yes, and, um, yeah, and it's ironic that CBS has Star Trek. That's the funny thing about it. (laughs) (laughs) But, but yeah, I remember reading that in Making of Star Trek, how Gene felt like, I mean, they they let him waste his time there for two hours. They knew that they were not going to accept it, but they but they let him just go through all this big presentation just to say no. And we have our own. Oh, I'm sorry, Lost in Space is nothing like Star Trek. <laughs> exactly, but but you know, at the time though, I don't think CBS was really sorry that they that they had Lost in Space though. It was a huge hit. It, it was. I mean, that was one of the problems that I had as a kid. Because I used to watch Lost in Space with my brother and Land of the Giants and, and those type of shows when when they were on reruns. But my frustration was when I heard that Lost in Space had higher ratings than Star Trek, that blew my mind. I remember because my mother loves Lost in Space. She was watching it live. And 
And she goes, oh, it was such a fun show because of Dr. Smith. And I said, I hate Dr. Smith. Are you kidding me? He drives me <laughs> crazy. Someone needs to toss him out of an airlock. So, I mean, they had a, a, a strange dynamic to it. But for the general public at the time, that's what science fiction was, was a bug-eyed monster of the week. Yeah, it was. And for Lost in Space, I, I know that it, like, it, it eventually became to be about the doctor and Will Robinson and the robot. But that was, you know, it wasn't like that at first, it but later it became, that. yeah, but it became the, you know, the trio, just, just like Star Trek became a trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Absolutely. Um, Star Trek, they were hoping that the entire focus would be on Captain Kirk, but the fan mail came in more so for Mr. Spock. And very much so with Lost in Space, Dr. Smith became the face of the show. Yeah, he did. He was, the comical character, and everybody loved, you could say loved him or hated him, loved to hate him. Yeah. <laughs> because he, he was the annoying guy who always got in the way. I also think it's interesting that both shows aired roughly the same time, and they both lasted three seasons. Yeah, that is interesting. And, the, I mean, the, the fact that you sort of, you do associate them together, but they, but like you said, they were very different shows. Star Trek was really was more serious and more cerebral, mm -hmm. and Lost in Space was about a family, and it was constructed to be more of a family show. And they both had current comic books at the time produced by Gold Key Comics. So, I mean, when you look at the parallels between Lost in Space and Star Trek, as fans, we might view them as very different, but at that time, they did have some commonalities. Yeah, they. I mean, both being sci-fi and... And ha having that element, and like the general audience did see him, see them as similar shows, and the robot, you know, was was based on the the uh, on Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet. A lot of people think it's the same robot, but if you look pictures at of them side by side, they were it was not the same design not at all. Even though it was the same designer, mm -hmm. but, correct. But you can tell they look completely different when you see them side by side. And Gene Roddenberry actually wanted to be. Like Oren Allen, who created Lost in Space, he created several science fiction shows. Yes. And Gene wanted to be someone like that who, who was known for creating several different shows. but And he tried to create other shows, but nothing really took off like Star Trek. I think the difference is Oren Allen produced shows in rapid succession, whereas Gene just – he always seemed to be struggling and arguing with the studios – and so yeah. by the time his other productions came to the fore, sometimes they were a decade or decades later where it just didn't have that, that feel, that momentum. And I think Star Trek was so grounded in his personality, sometimes people just didn't give it a chance like they would Irwin Allen productions. Yeah, because Gene made these other pilots, but then they just – yeah, he couldn't really get the series going. There were problems going on, and some of it was his – arguing with the with the writers and producers other people so yeah it, it, it was harder for him to get it going and the article also mentions a connection with batman as well which was released in 1966 and we know that there's a lot of crossovers with the actors of star trek and with batman yes and lost in space was in, in some ways was inspired by the campy batman show yeah that that was one of the reasons lost in space became so campy was because they were Copying Batman's formula. I mean, isn't that funny when you put the three of them together and you see that 
they were all vying. They wanted to be the number one spot, so they had to pull from each other in some sort of direction. Yeah, there, there was some influence there. And can you imagine watching TV back then and, and being a fan of all of those shows? And, and like, I would have thought it was amazing. Yeah, totally. And, and the article says that um, Dr. Smith was actually was added at the last minute. He wasn't even one of the original characters. Well, didn't we see? We saw the original pilot. The original and pilot was him. such a different feel to it. Yeah, it was like a radically different show. Well, it's kind of like the Star Trek pilot. Yeah, yeah, they really changed it a lot after they made that. You recall that pilots of that time weren't the first episode; they were just for executives viewing only, and then they would make a first episode for a series. So when you watch the pilot and you say, "Wow, this show could have been very different." If they went with that initial direction, just like yeah, the cage yeah. would have been very different if they kept Jeffrey Hunter on the show. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. So I know what, when I went to Dixie Trek, actually my first Atlanta convention, they had, um, well, Denise Crosby was one guest, but they also had Billy Moomy and Mark Goddard from Lost in Space. And, and it was so funny. I, I was with my friend Andrea and we went to the, you know, we were at the con and we were going to have dinner at the hotel restaurant. And there was like, there was almost nobody in the restaurant, but they still had the sign up that said, please wait to be seated. And there were these two guys in line and me and Andrea went up behind them. And then I kind of said, I said something like, Oh, there's a sign back there. I want to go look at the sign. And we, and then we walked away and one of those guys in line said, Oh, don't go away. And, and I just said, we'll be back. And then we walked away and then, and then I told Andrea, Hey, that, that that's them. That's Mark Goddard and Bill Moomy. And, and it was Mark Goddard that had said, don't go away. And Andrea said, like, oh, oh, I thought that was just, uh, some old men that were flirting with us or something. <laughs> but then when, when they got seated, I mean, you know, so th- those two guys got seated first and we were at another table. Mm-hmm. And since the restaurant was practically deserted, you know, they, they were talking so we could hear them. I mean, like when we ordered, I mean, they ordered first, but for some reason we got our order first. And then Mark Goddard said, well, well, we were here first. How come they got served first? And Billy Moomy said, it's because they're prettier than us. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and it took so long for them to get their meal. I don't know why, but they, but they, they said they had to leave because they had to go judge the, um, the costume contest and they, they had to get there early for that. And Mark Goddard was walking around, where's our food? And, and me and Andre said, uh, well, we've got some rolls. You want our rolls? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, yeah, give me that. And then he goes, no, I'm just kidding. You know, but it, it was just funny. So we had a few laughs with them. Now, let me ask you, by this point, was Billy Moomy in Star Trek? Because we know oh, later yeah. on he became Star Trek alumni. Right. This, this was, this was 1990. So Deep Space Nine hadn't come on yet. Wow. Yeah, so that was, yeah, it was really funny. We had a ball. (laughs) Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. It's funny to see the connections of sci-fi from, from years ago. Captain, our sensors indicate a huge whirling belt of alien matter approaching the Enterprise at warp six. Red alert, repeat, red alert. Activate view screen, Mr. Sulu. What you're looking at, Captain, is the Romvian pollution belt formed hundreds of years ago. Wasn't it before people became aware of pollution and began pointing it out? Exactly. Once enough people started pointing out pollution, the pollution stopped. Yes, Mr. Spock, people finally got the point. All right, we have to talk about the most amazing Star Trek convention in the world. That is the Trek Track. 
within Dragon Con. Let's talk about Dragon Con 2021. Okay, well, you know, the con was after COVID. The, the previous year, they had only done it online. So 2021 was both online and in person, but we were there in person. And it was great because it wasn't as crowded because they capped membership. And they told locals yeah. to stay away. Right, yeah. Like, yeah, like for the parade. The parade is usually open to anybody who wants to come and stand on the street and watch. But this time they said only Dragon Con people could even watch the parade. And there were still thousands and thousands of people yeah, out there. Yeah, we were in the parade, and we were expecting, like, like nobody to be watching, except that it was, you know, the TV camera to put it on TV on the local station. But anyway, but there was actually a good crowd there watching. Totally. The opening ceremonies, you have to realize that it's Garrett Wong of Star Trek Voyager fame actually runs the Trek track. Yes. So he was there to commence the opening ceremonies of the Trek track. And I love the statement that he made. He goes, I've been to conventions around the world. And when you think about it, we think that we go to a lot of conventions. No one beats him. Yeah. He well, does something like 40 conventions that, yeah. a year or something. I mean, he, he really exactly. goes they, everywhere. Yeah. And he says that Dragon Con is the best Star Trek convention in the world. Now I was surprised he says something like that. Well, Garrett Long said that. And because he said, I try to explain to people, this convention doesn't shut down. That's the big difference. <laughs> yes, because the people, and, it, and it's really the the people, the con goers who make it because mm-hmm. they they stay up all hours, you know, just um, having fun, partying, and and you know, like you go around and watch the cosplay. There's still cosplayers up late at night. But even panels they still have da- yeah. The There's panels, panels at ten o'clock at night. Yes, the panels late at night, the dances that go on hours and hours. Oh, and for Garrett Wong, you know, we do want to say it, it's W-A-N-G, but he does pronounce it Wong. That's right. Because that, that has been questioned before. Mm-hmm. And so he runs the Trek track, always does a great job. And we actually did two panels on the Trek track this year. And I did three. Right, I you did, did. Yeah, I did an extra panel. I jumped in about Star Trek video games. Because they needed someone... To fill in, right? They had some cancellations. Yeah, we had some cancellations with professionals, and someone reached out to me, and I said, you know, I'm a storehouse of useless information. That's what my father would tell me. If it doesn't make me money, I know it. (laughs) (laughs) So just talk about the history of Star Trek video games. Super easy for me. Great panelists that I was uh, co-paneling with, but also we ran a panel about Vulcans. Yes, um, we did our own panel on Vulcan history and culture. And that, that went pretty well. So we did our, we did our PowerPoint presentation and it was on the last day of the con and I wasn't expecting a lot of people, but I think we had a good show up for that. We had a great showing of that. Yeah. Uh, we're just finding that Trek fans just have a passion for all, all, especially the eclectic things of Trek, the unique things, the deeper dives into things. Another panel that we presented? Star Trek fan films. Which was a blast. Yes, we invited some of our friends to do that panel with us. And this was actually another one where some of the people had canceled. But we, we got some of our friends to do it. And uh, we had a lot of fun on that one because we've actually been in some fan films. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the ones that we did. And uh, the other panelists talked about all the fan films that they did. Yes, Joe Cepeda of Nature's Hunger. Yeah, he actually and, makes his own fan films. Yes, and Leslie Sawyer, who's in 
a ridiculous amount of fan films. Right. Temkin Productions, yeah, the whole actress. nine yards. She's done dozens, yeah. Yes. And, and she's actual an actress on television as well. To, so to have someone of, of her caliber was amazing to have on the panel. We, we really had a lot of fun this Dragon Con. Even for the, I mean, the first official party of the con is on Thursday night. The Bunny Hutch. Yes, and we did the Bunny Hutch as well. We, we actually did our, um, Star Trek mashups with the, with the, the Bunny Hutch, which the theme is Playboy Bunny and Hugh Hefner. So I did the, um, the red corset with a Star Trek patch and the bunny ears, and you did your Hugh Hefner bathrobe. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't understand what the bunny hutch is, describe. Because some of our listeners have only gone to specific Star Trek conventions and don't realize the the whole mashup idea with the enormity of Dragon Con. Right. and Well, you can actually find our podcast that talks about the bunny hutch. But it, it, it's a big party, and they just they call it the Bunny Hutch because the theme is the uh, the Playboy bunnies with the ears and the tail, and the um, and the and the guys being in the robes like like the pajamas, like Hugh, Hugh Hefner. But but it's still it's just a big dance, and you don't really have to have the costume to attend. So you you just have to be a Dragon Con member. And we also saw other Trek mashups doing that too. We saw some Borg Bunny Hutchers. We did. Yeah, and the creativity behind everything they do is amazing. All the all the other uh, cosplayers, um, they they can do. They just think of anything, anything that they they love, and they can do a bunny version of it. They're they're great. We marched in our Picard uniforms for the parade. Yes, we did. Um, we did the um, Picard uniforms that has the stripe, the one from from twenty years ago on Picard, and we marched with the Star Trek group group in the parade. And they're such a yeah. wonderful group of people, aren't they? Because they, they we went were. out to dinner with them. They and were a just lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, met more Star Trek fans and everything. It, it was really cool. And of course, the the parade has all different fandoms as well. So being in the Star Trek group uh, really made it special. And we wore our Enterprise jumpsuits. Yeah, well, it was NASA Enterprise. <laughs> That's it. The what we say the first Enterprise. So the space shuttle. We we have replicas of the space shuttle flight yes. suits. Yes, and I mean it is very similar to the this, the the uh, uniform they wore on Enterprise, but but some people at the con did recognize us as as NASA astronauts. And the fun part is that in the same hotel that hosts the Dragon Con Trek Track, also hosts that is the Hilton Hotel hosts the Space Track. And I spent a lot of time in the Space Track this year, going back and forth between Trek Track and Space Track. I mean, there are just some amazing panels that shows that. What was, what is in Gene Roddenberry's future is is in our real life future. The space track was a was a lot of fun too. They had, we went to one panel on biology in space, and really it, it was really interesting about how humans really aren't meant to live in space. I mean, like there's no air. Like how you know there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff to consider trying to put someone in space. Even just talking about the space stations, how filthy yes. it is because sweat just oozes out of people's pores and just goes all over. Like, I, ne- I just never stopped to think about that, where yeah, does sweat go? It, it's Yeah, it's a lot of things that you don't really think of, and it's amazing how much they, they know about it all, about how much they know because, you know, they've already put people in space, but to us ordinary people, we just don't realize how much how much thought really had to go into it. And I think that was the the night that we were wearing our Enterprise uniforms. People on the space track 
immediately knew. They said, hey, those are those space shuttle suits from the late 70s. (laughs) (laughs) The panel with Kim Stedman, who is the system engineer on NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I mean, she's the science system engineer for the Mars 2020 rover project. It was absolutely amazing. It was one of my favorite panels of the convention. And it's one of the things you, you go to a panel like that and you realize that this is the future that Gene Roddenberry was imagining. You have this amazing, energetic, intelligent woman who's operating this project that years ago would, would be science fiction and now it is science fact. Yeah, that's amazing. And, it, and it's great to see the, these scientists there. They're so knowledgeable about everything and they say all of these, all of these things that you just never thought of. And they bring it down to the average person's capacity for understanding. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, like, if I, if you can help me to appreciate what you're doing and you have this amazing brain, like, you are an incredible speaker to me. And so, I'm like I'm sold forever of of attending her panels. This is somehow some way I've missed them when she was uh, there previously, but because this Dragon Con had less people, less crowds, I was able to go to more panels than ever before. This one this year actually was my 30th Dragon Con. And so at the end of our Vulcan panel, you had everyone sing Happy Dragon Con to me, <laughs> which was really cool. It was. It was. I mean, you've seen a lot of changes in 30 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to Dragon Con back when it was mostly just a comic book convention with, with no um, actor guests at all. And, and speaking of actors, we do have to mention they had some Star Trek Discovery actors this year. Sonequa Martin-Green and Paul Stamets and Mary Wiseman and her husband Noah Aberbatch Katz and Rika Sharma. They did a panel together, and they were great. And my friend Eddie also asked me to do the um, the uh, photo op with him with Sonequa Martin-Green. Oh, and, and she was great, too. I mean, she she was funny. She was happy and a great sport doing the, the photo op and everything. It, it went by very quickly because the photographer was in a hurry, I guess. But it, it was a lot of fun. And, and William Shatner, of course, was there. He's, he's actually been there... <laughs> like, like just about every year for the last few years. And our friend Richard Trollson, um, who was the uh, commanding officer of the USS Warner Von Braun out of Huntsville, Alabama. That's our ship in Starfleet International. We ran into him. He's a big cosplayer, too. That's so awesome. Yeah, Dragon Con, I will consistently say it over and over again. It is the best Star Trek convention on the planet. Happy Dragon Con, dear Vavora. Happy Dragon Con to you. Yay! Starlog Magazine, issue number 22, cover date May 1979. Log entries. Star Trek's only exterior set. The Star Trek movie's use of the hot, bubbling springs and rimstone formation at Minerva's Terrace in Yellowstone National Park was described in log entries. The famous tourist attraction at the park was used as a background for a shot of Spock on his home planet Vulcan. Now what's interesting is that this article talks about how 
Years ago in movie making, they tried to do as many outdoor shots as possible because it was cost effective. But for Star Trek, it was a different story. Nearly everything was done in the studio with the exception of this Vulcan scene. Well, well, it really made it look good though using that, that, uh, that statue. And it really looked like it was on another planet. I remember watching it when it came out and just being amazed because I wanted more and more information about Vulcan. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and we still only got one small scene on Vulcan in the movie, but, but it was, yeah, it was awesome to see that. I was really excited for that, yes. Hi, this is Bobby Nash, writer of uh, Starship Farragut's Conspiracy of Innocence. I've also spent a little time on the Starship Enterprise and the hospital ship Marie Curie. And when I'm kicking back in my quarters for rest and relaxation, you know, I like listening to the Star Pod Trek podcast. Greetings, Star Pod Trekkers. It's the gang from Earth Station Trek. If you've never heard our show, we're a, a podcast where we talk about Star Trek from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. I'm Charles Kelso, and with me today, we've got Keith Johnson. Greetings, all. Alan Seiler. How's it going? And Veronica Daschle. Hello. And today we're talking about... Oh, I just forgot what we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, an article that was written by David Gerald for, David Starlog, Gerald. Yes. for Starlog Magazine in 79? 79, yeah. Issue 22, it was May 1979 when this was released. David Gerald of the Trouble with Tribbles fame. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the article is called Award in the Hand or Hugo's There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, him with the wordplay. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we think? That was a lot of talk to say that awards are basically useless and it's not about the award. Yeah. It's about the experience. Yeah. Yeah, he, he sort of doubled down on doubled up on his words a few times, like said the same <laughs> yeah. thing up repeatedly, but okay. Right. I was gonna ask for a summary, Veronica, and I think that was kind of <laughs> it. That was, that was a very good concise right. summary of what the article was about. Yeah. I thought this is where when I, I read the article and I wrote down I agree and disagree with him at the same time. Um I'm older than some of the people on the podcast, and I grew up really liking award shows, and but I have noticed that Nowadays, a lot of people I talk to, especially younger people, and actually a lot of science fiction fans, really despise award shows. Um, I know very few people now who watch the Oscars a lot. I watch the Oscars every year. I was listening to another uh, film podcast just the other week, um, just the other day. Three guys who do a film podcast I really like, and these are real. These guys have been doing a film podcast for ten years, and every one of them said, "Yeah, I didn't watch the Emmys because I just think they don't matter anymore." And they basically also mentioned it was a bunch of self-important people who find an excuse to get together to give each other awards. I see why people feel that way, but I don't feel that way about award shows. I still kind of enjoy them. I think it's great for people who work in the same business, same genre to get together. I will say as a quick summary, we can get into more detail. I think that sometimes you bring to this some of the problems you have. But one thing Mr. Gerald did say is that when he got nominated, he was the first person ever to get nominated for was it Hugo Award on his first time out with the for their first Tribbles. professional sale? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. He also mentioned he acknowledged that it went to his head, and he acknowledged that he was, you know, his words, he was drunk when he went to the award show, and that he was not only not happy when he lost, but he handled it badly. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of get what he's saying, but I also feel that some of this is perhaps his personal 
deals oh, yeah. with award shows. And that's where I kind of came with. I think that award shows need, to, we do need to look at them. They need to be better. If you look at some really wild award, like uh, the Nobel prizes, they don't make you fly all the way to another country and have everybody sit in a room and then announce the winner. You know, you won before you go there. And one of the things he talked about was the stress of sitting there. And basically he was almost actually saying he was, you get embarrassed if you lose. Mm. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with his take on that. Well, I mean, he's talking from his own experience, right? but he's, he's sort of ascribing it to, you know, generally people who go to awards. And right. I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that you, Unless, I mean, now, you know, I'm thinking more of Oscars and Emmys and that kind of thing. Um, And certainly those people are professional actors and they could just act like they're, you know, not Mm -hmm. embarrassed or not, you know, but he really made it sound like this was, uh, you know, okay, so I'm reading the article Mm -hmm. and um, halfway through, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is nothing but you know, the ramblings of some guy who's bitter about having not won an award. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he says, now, let me explain. I was nominated for a Hugo, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't win. And I was like, and there it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, it really sounds like he had such a, like, it was a traumatic experience for him. Both, yes. Both the lead up to and uh the 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 post not having won both were equally difficult for him mm. right i will point out too that he, when he was nominated for a hugo for the trouble with tribbles he lost to city on the edge of forever right what it says here was if you're gonna lose a hugo yeah city on the edge of forever you know I, I don't i don't feel like you'd go home feeling bad that city on the edge of forever won the hugo right but at the same time uh i don't know what else was nominated in that same category but to lose to an episode from the same season of the same show mm. in which you are nominated. If, if you lost to a, you know, lost in space episode or something, then, you know, <laughs> it might not be the same as, as a guy who submitted a script to the same show that you're working on. You know, I don't know. Yeah. That, that probably did change the dynamic of what he was feeling. Right. Yeah. As an aside, as a funny aside, um, by his own admission, David Gerald was, was, he had been drinking and he said he was pretty, he said he was pretty much a hard person to get to deal with leading up to the award. And he was a hard person to deal with after the award. He was mm-hmm. mad. He was really angry. But the guy who won was, um, like you said, Harlan Ellison's script. Now Harlan Ellison is notoriously bad tempered and rude. <laughs> and also Harlan Ellison notoriously hates City on the Edge of Forever. Because of how much they version. changed it. Yeah, their, their he, version. Right. He loves his version. He he hates exactly. what happened to his. Yeah, exactly. Right. So to your point, David Gerald losing to Harlan Ellison. Can you see them in the room talking about it? They're probably <laughs> both pissed off. <laughs> I think it was the Hugo that he had submitted his script, and his script was what won, not the oh, aired okay. episode. So no, he was, okay. In that case, yeah. that's good. Yeah, that's good. So what do you guys think about that? Like what Alan was saying as well was that I think there's truth in what he said, but there's so much was filtered through what felt like bitterness, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it was still, it was still fresh for him. I mean, it was still, I mean, it had been, the years had passed, but it, it was right. a lot rawer for him then than it would be if he were saying the same things now. And, he, right. and he's right that there are a lot of awards. And what he, one thing he says yeah. in this article is that it seems like every time someone dies, they make a new award to honor them you know so i I expect you get tired of being nominated for every convention having this award and you go around and maybe you win maybe you don't people taking it too seriously and that sort of thing i can see how especially if you're actively like like, 
Gerald's a pretty uh, prolific science fiction writer. I expect that he, mm-hmm. after a while, it's like, leave me alone. I meant to check uh, to see, but I'm sure he has won other awards since then. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. So I'm wondering if his perspective is different now than it was when he was much younger and much newer in his career. And like the first thing he submits gets put up for this massive award. You yeah. know, it's got to change your perspective a little bit. Yeah, I would expect so. Um, like when I was growing up and you know, you see Hugo Award winner on the cover of sci-fi books. And, yeah. And I always imagine the Hugo Award. And like, like there's a, like a, a panel of guys in robes that are, you know, <laughs> experts and appraising <laughs> these stories. And, but it's not. It's like, it's no, it's just one guy named Hugo. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but the way it worked a few years ago when I was, I was looking at when the sad puppies thing was going on. And basically it was, you, you, you pay $40 to have a admission to this convention and then you get a vote. You know, so it's just, yeah. it's like a popularity yeah. thing. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really stood out in the article to me was uh, he was talking about there's different ways to look at awards. One of them is that uh, it's it's more a reflection on the organization giving the award. Right. And for the award to have meaning, uh you have to see the organization as something worthy of giving an award. And what I found so interesting about that is that we saw exactly that scenario play out this past year with the Grammys and the weekend, Mm. you know, he went off the rails because his, his record wasn't nominated for anything. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we're talking about a single that was enormous and Mm. was a fantastic song. And, you know, so the, 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 two sides of this coin is that you have the weekend who is, you know, come across as kind of like, you know, well, if you're not going to recognize how great I am, then screw you, right. you know, forget about it. And, and he basically said to the Grammys, don't ever consider any of my stuff for awards again, because I don't consider you to be, you know, I don't consider your award to be worth anything. Uh-huh. And, yeah. you know, so he, he has shown us an example of, you know, an organization that he does not see any merit in and right. award from them is meaningless. But on the other side, he's also saying, well, I, I, you know, you didn't bother to nominate me. So, you know, so yeah. obviously he there was some importance to him in that award. Absolutely. He's just saying that because he didn't get a nomination. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a weird, interesting thing. And I, I thought it was a it was a neat little drama to watch play out. I mean, if if the reason you don't see any merit in the awards is because they didn't nominate you, I think it's a little. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Right. Clearly you have no taste because you don't recognize me, you know. Right. Exactly. And that's such a Kanye move. I mean, that sounds like something <laughs> directly out of the Kanye playbook, and you wouldn't have expected it necessarily from the weekend. Mm. But, you know, his point is, it's a great song, and it probably should have been nominated. Mm. Anyway, um, I, I focus a lot, a little bit more on the Grammys and stuff like that than, you know, the average folk do, I guess. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so uh, I, I just thought that was an interesting point, and it, and it really stuck out in that article. Yeah, I think it goes back to that. When I when I was reading the note I took was I agree with him, but I disagree with him. Because I think, it, to your point, Alan, it comes down to really one of two things. Do you believe in awards at all or no? I mean, that, yeah. that's, and he was almost given a dichotomy, all awards are no good. 
and they're all self-aggrandizing and they only reflect on the organization and they're, they're and the people who judge them are wrong. I think that, I think as humans, we all like awards. I mean, you know, if we got a podcast award, we'd take it. I've gotten awards. I was just going to say life. the same thing. You know, yeah, you know, we'll take it, right? Um, and I've got, we've all got, I've gotten awards in my life, academic and other kinds of awards. Um, heck, I had, I got two awards. No, I had three, four awards for Fris- Frisbee. <laughs> for frisbee and i'm i'm proud of those doggone things i like them <laughs> um but i thought one thing he said i've got to say this i thought this is very interesting david gerald was talking about how the people who select the awards basically was saying it was all a gimmick and it didn't mean anything and i thought that was i thought that was interesting because david gerald is a white man talking about a time when frankly people of color and women didn't got nominated for awards. I mean, you got people like Ursula K. Le Guin and some others who are getting awards, but it was not, it was not an organization. Science fiction and fantasy and film were not places where people of color and women were acknowledged very much. And so part of me was kind of like, dude, what are you complaining about? At least you got nominated for an award back right. then. Um, yeah. We look at it now, there's the whole thing that we had just a few years ago, Oscar so white and we look yeah. at the Oscars, and the truth of the matter is that the majority of the, the motion picture arts and academy have mm-hmm. been old, older white men, not not complaining about that, but I still like the Oscars. And so to me, it's just one of the lines that bring more people in to make the decision, have people have yeah. different viewpoints. Right. And then that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't diminish the awards at that time. I think mm-hmm. it just makes them better. No, it, it enriches you know, it. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. But on a, on a more, on a slightly broader uh, perspective he was also talking about a, a really really uh, like uh, strident dichotomy he, he's saying you know why do we have to have awards at all exactly. why do we have to have a category where five things are nominated one of them wins and the other ones we call them trash you know why do we have to have one winner and and five other losers or whatever and i just think that's not the way to look at it no <laughs> you're you're celebrating achievement in a particular field and all five of those and i mean there's there's you know a hundred other things that may not have got nominations mm. that are equally good um but you're saying all five of those are worthy of you know a top award it's not saying you know harlan ellison won and everything else throw it in the garbage I just thought Absolutely. his I just thought his perspective was so strange on that. Yeah, I think yeah. if I was a no, if I was a nominated for a Hugo, I would tell every person I meet. Thank I, you. I, I would tell the guy at the gas station. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, uh, there's there's been a lot of talk recently, and and Keith kind of brought this up earlier, you know, talking about how nobody watches the Oscars and the Emmys and the Grammys or whatever, and yeah. do those awards have any meaning? Well, it does to the person who won or their publishing company or record label or whatever, because you can smack that, you know, uh, Grammy nominated or, Mm -hmm. you know, Grammy winner label on an artist or a product. And that does carry some kind of validation. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So the award, the award might not, and the award show might not, but having that label does mean something. I wonder if, like, if David Gerald read back this article now, I, or this column, I wonder if he would say, like, yeah, no, I really really stand by that. Or if he'd say, like, yeah, I was, I had a few too many that weekend and, <laughs> and hammered out that I was a little mad about whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although, to the point, he wrote that article, what, 10 years after he was nominated for? Nine. Nine years yeah. after. So, yeah, at least a decade he was holding that. Yeah, I think some of it was personal because I, I thought it was very interesting how he mentioned the fact that it was – 
basically kept saying it was almost embarrassing and insult because like you said Alan, he's yeah. like there's a winner and then a rescue or losers but, yeah. well that's not how you look at it. although it, i know the oscars no longer say the winner is they say the oscar goes to yes 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 exactly <laughs> and you know there's that whole cliche about um you know it's just an honor to even be nominated mm-hmm. but that's true it is i mean if if yeah. if 50 let's say 15 what am i trying to what's the number I, I can't even think of a number right now. A number let's 12. say, <laughs> let's say 500 <laughs> movies came out this past year. If you have a film that was nominated in a field of 500 films and you are one of five or six or whatever nominated in a particular category, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, even if you it. don't get the trophy and you don't get to go up on stage and have the acceptance speech, the fact that you were nominated is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I that's just—I just think it's incredible. I also think he's missing one other thing, and again, I understand where he's kind of coming from. But to your point, um, when I sometimes, like Charles, uh, when you were saying, like when I was first getting to fantasy years ago, the first fantasy book I read was not The Hobbit; it was this uh, trilogy called The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, the Unbeliever. Phenomenal fantasy thing. I saw that book in a grocery store, and there was a thing on the song, and it talked about it was. You know, gosh, there's 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 all these awards. It's like the Newberry Award, the Wrinkle in Time got. Mm-hmm. There's all these other awards, and on the book it said the blah 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 nominated. Like, hey, and it it brought my attention to it. Mm-hmm. And so I think to some one way what he's looking at to your point, Alan. Like if you have you know, 500 movies out there, and you got some a 30 year old filmmaker who just made their first film, and you're sitting there one day going, I don't know what to watch because there's 500 things out there. Well, if somebody says, Hey, look at these 10 movies that were nominated for an Oscar. What's wrong with bringing their attention to that person? Because otherwise, you may just drop, you may just watch some piece of dreck one night and you don't even know, like, well, I sure wasted my time on that, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you, I mean, um, my little publishing company that I run, um, Mm -hmm. we've got a, you know, six or seven or eight titles out and we're about to release our first novel. Mm -hmm. It's a debut novel by a a new author. Um, It's a teen historical fan, a story, and it's really good. I guarantee you, if that thing got nominated for some award nobody had even ever heard of, I would republish that. Exactly right. (laughs) And I would put it everywhere. The, you know, the Fred Flintstone award nominated (laughs) novel. No joke. It will be everywhere. I don't care if it was like long listed and didn't make the short list. It's still going to get put on the cover. (laughs) Whatever award nominated, blah, blah, blah. Heck yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So now we need to start a uh, Star Trek podcast award. (laughs) Award ourselves. Yes. <laughs> well, that's a yeah. good point. We could be, but but, but we, we would. But we didn't win. The, we no, didn't win. We only got nominated. <laughs> no, Wouldn't but we graded it, and then we award it to everyone else, and then everyone else talks about it, and then they have to listen to our podcast because we're the ones that awarded it to all these other podcasts. Oh, that everyone watches. That's, that's good. Yeah. You were awesome. on a winning idea there. That's a great idea. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great hearing Patrick Stewart saying, and the, and the badgie goes too. <laughs> the badgie. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> oh, now it has to happen. The badgie, oh yeah. The awesome. badgie. Oh, that's <laughs> brilliant. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a badgie puppet, and they spin it. Yes. <laughs> that's the award. Yes. <laughs> Done. That's awesome. You're here but, first. <laughs> but I will say, um, it's so funny, because David Gerald, he did touch a chord, because I talked to... 
like Alan, you said you watch the Grammys and stuff like that. I still watch the award shows. I talk to so many people who just hate award shows. They're like, I don't want to see those self-important, rich people. I don't care, George Clooney and stuff like that. I just enjoy watching them because I, I still celebrate the industry. And I, and I think it's great to give people recognition. I do think that the, like the Grammys and the Emmys and the Oscars and the Billboard Awards, and maybe I'm making this point by naming all these awards, that as they get more diversity, I'm seeing more, like I'll turn into the Oscars and I'll, I'll see a movie now, man. Like, wow, I didn't know anything about this movie. And that helps me focus on it. I don't think that there's anything wrong with awards. I think that, yes, you need to look at how they're being chosen. As you guys are saying, the Hugos are basically a popularity contest. I think you need to look at the process and make sure the process is more fair and make sure that you have more diverse people making those decisions. But we're humans and we have egos and we like to be acknowledged and we like to be praised. It's like, sounds like something Kirk would tell Spock. You know, we, we, we are humans. We, we like to know that people like us. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, I think the process maybe needs to be streamlined a little better, but I don't think that there's something wrong with awards. And I really think, I, th- I think a, a key thing that I think David Gerald says to you guys' point, I hope he's gotten over, is if you think about it as I won, you lose, that's the wrong attitude. Agreed. Because that's not what they're about at all. You know, yeah. Award shows, not yep. in my opinion. Okay. Well, if anyone wants to hear more of us talking about Star Trek and David Gerald and things like that, Earth Station Trek is the name of the show. You can find us on any, any podcast platform out there. Check us out on Facebook. You can email us at earthstationtrek at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Check us out. Anybody else have anything to add to that? Badgie's coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> the great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, we humans are much more than just simply alive. Conscious intelligence gives us the incredible, the lift ourselves up from our bootstraps ability to unravel the very secrets of life itself and the universe in which we find ourselves living. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Hi, this is Bob Vossler, and thank you for joining me for another segment of this podcast and providing my review of an article that uh, ironically featured the subject of being an extra, specifically being an extra in Star Trek The Motion Picture. By pure coincidence, it dawned on me that, hey, I know a person who was a extra in Star Trek The Motion Picture. I know one quite well. And he's got an interesting history, and that's why we'll be sharing a long conversation with Steve Lance, a good friend of mine. Steve, thanks for joining me. I I knew that this was just tailor-made for an interview with you when I saw the subject of that article, and uh, that not only could I review the article, but actually talk to somebody who had the wonderful experience of being an extra on Star Trek, the motion picture. And uh, let's start off with telling us, with telling the, the audience just how you got there. Cause you know, that's very interesting in itself. Well, gee, hello, Bob. It's always nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you said we're going to talk about Star Trek, the motion picture. I thought this was a nanny and the professor show. <laughs> That's another installment for another Okay, time. I, I, I got to refrain. Okay, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. So, you want to know how I got to be uh, on the record? 
Yes, yes, and and all the makeup involved, and and all the experiences along the way, because you know it was quite an adventure for you. Well, I tell you, young man, you know when I was a young fella and I was hosting the Star Trek shows, um, it, there's so much Bob to share. But first of all, they, they just jump around. the The set was just amazing. I mean, it just if you did not look all the way up and see the catwalks and the lights, which were very, very, very high up, because it was, you know, a two, it was a two-story set. You truly believed that you were on the recreation deck of the USS Enterprise. I mean, it, it was that solid, you know, it was wow. that solid. It, it didn't look like the town in uh, Spectre of the Gun from the U.S. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and a far cry from, you know, with this kind of budget than what we saw in in the original series. Yeah, it was... Uh, this is what we always wanted to see. To, to see, but we'll go back now to how I got it, and it was because I got to be host of the original Star Trek conventions, which was one of those, being the right place, being the right time, a uh, little talent, little luck at the same time. I had gone to the convention in 1973 with my friend Barry uh, Presser, and... Barry said, uh, why don't you enter the talent show? And I had been doing this thing around the lunch table at Granny School in Tick Falls, New Jersey, where I'd, you know, throw out the voices, Bob, you know, like, yeah. Mr. Scott, I can't do a thing about this out of the engine, and I'm low. Or uh, Mr. Sulu would say, who can't deny? <laughs> and, and I would just be goofing around at the lunch table with these voices. Uh, and he, he said, well, go up there. And I didn't have a real you know, stand in front of the brick wall routine, you know what I mean? You, you remember those comedy shows that they had for a while during the writer's strike? They, yeah. Catch, they, were, they were very big because they didn't have to script the shows and <laughs> they caught on. But, you know, the comedians would always be standing in front of a, a brick wall. That, that was the set. And I didn't have that experience, nor did I have a, a real routine structured. And I just kept making stuff up. And they were laughing. So I made more stuff up and I kind of developed this routine which later got honed and, and actually recorded on a, on a record but the uh, the routine is called If We because Kirk always hesitates when he speaks and it's If We Captain you have to spit it out sir. we've only got 60 <laughs> minutes you know, you know it's, that, it's that kind of a, a thing and, and he's talking to some alien that's floating around the, you know the Enterprise and it's you know Captain Kirk
freshman in college negotiating for, for salary. And they said, no, we can't, but we'll, um, I said, well, I, I need them to be introduced on this big stage in the big ballroom because that's where all the actors are. That's where the news media is. If I'm going to start my show business career, I want to get some, you know, some coverage, some ink, as they used to call it. Sure. And she's, you know, she said, okay, fine, fine. You know, you'll, you'll be in the big room introduced by the master of ceremonies. Well, you know, several months go by and a convention is coming up. And two weeks before, her committee member, Al Schuster, who actually ran the, the conventions, calls me up and says, uh, Steve, uh, we're, we're going to have to make a change. You're not going to be introduced by the master of ceremonies. I said, hey, Al, that was the deal. That's what you promised me. He said, no, wait, 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 wait. The, the master of ceremonies quit. So we want you to host the show. So you're not going to be introduced by the master of ceremonies because you're going to be the master of ceremonies. <laughs> and, that's how I, and that's how I got the, the first job to host the convention. And I guess I did okay because I... I did those conventions in 74, 75, 76, all the way, all the way through. And during that time, we were working in the background trying to sell Paramount on the concept of a, a new TV series or motion picture. And when they, they finally did, you know, uh, make the, the, the final, uh, get the final approval from Paramount and, and Gene Ronberry sent out uh, phone calls to people. He didn't call me directly, but somebody from his office did and said, uh, we'd like you to would you like to have a, a small part in the film? And it was the Gene's way of saying thank you to, to the fans, uh, or the mm. people, the people who, who participated in keeping Star Trek alive, Star Trek in the forefront. And there, there were wonderful people there that were associated with that. Uh, B. Joe Triple, who started the, the, the letter writing campaign that, that brought the third season because it was going to be canceled after the second season. And, and David Gerald, who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles. David Gerald was there, and the director Robert Weiss has his wife in the scene, and James Doohan and, and, and uh, Grace Lee Whitney have their kids in the in the scene. So it was it was kind of a, a very special moment to, to actually be there. And, and of course, you know, we were there in Hollywood for about a week, a little bit over a week, because we had to go in for costuming, then makeup, and, and it was it was kind of neat. I originally, I don't know if I ever told you. The, I was originally, I wanted to be a Vulcan. Did I ever tell you that, Bob? I think you did, and, and I could see that, um, especially with right. the way your hair, you know, and everything. Exactly, my dark hair and, and the, the shape of my face is not unlike you know, yeah. boy shape, you know, as opposed to a round face. My face is, you know, is longer, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, well, Freddie Phillips, make it Fred, Fred B. Phillips, if you're reading the credits on the screen. I said, Freddie, you know, because I knew him from the conventions. I, I said, Freddie, you know, make me a Vulcan. And he said, well, we already got enough Vulcans for this. Uh, why don't you sit down? You'll be a bumhead. That's what he called me, a bumhead. <laughs> and, and I didn't know what that was. And back then, I, I looked like Freddie Prince Jr. And if your listeners don't know who that is, uh, you Google him. And then you'll see that's what I looked like back then, with a mustache and long hair. And they sent me to the barber to uh, get my hair cut into the Star Trek haircut, uh, you know, style. So... Mm -hmm. I look pretty much like a, a clean cut, you know, crew member. And then I still kept my mustache and I'm sitting in the makeup chair. This is a, a day later after the haircut. And uh, they're putting on this alien makeup to make me this bump head. And Freddie Phillips, Fred Phillips is walking around looking at all the different aliens that are being made up for the scene. You know, me, the Dorians, the, you know, the different characters. And he goes, oh, by the way, Steve, I forgot to tell you, 
bumpheads don't have mustaches. And in two seconds, they buzzed off the mustache. And then put, and then put the, you know, the cake makeup. And, and, you know, it was like, it's a liquid makeup. And I can't tell you how much that stung. It was like, uh, you know, like Kirk in The Devil in the Dark. Like, oh, the pain. Oh, the pain. Oh, it was Spock doing the pain, right? Spock. Oh, the pain. Yeah, that's how I felt when they cut off my mustache. So, so that's how I got into the, into the scene. And the first costume they put on me was brown, and it just didn't fit. And I didn't like the way it looked. It just I didn't like it. And, and they, the, the costumer said, ah, "It's a little bit too big, and we'd have to take it in too much." And here, try this one. And it's a white one with gray pants. Yeah, short sleeve, right? It said, was short sleeve. That's my look. Yeah, that's my look. So I I, I donned the uh, the white shirt the gray pants um, and was put in the you know the prosthetic makeup which you know covered all of my hair all of my my sideburns were cut my, my pointed sideburns Bob I wanted it uh. in Freehold when I was a kid I grew up in Freehold and, and I couldn't wait to come back to Freehold with my pointed sideburns to show all <laughs> my friends and hey look hey I was in Star Trek look at this look at well the first thing that Freddie his makeup artist did was to cut the sideburns off complete, not just like regular sideburns, the short ones, but all the way to the top of my ear because uh, the prosthetic, because the prosthetic had to glue in all yeah, around that. Yeah. So not only, yeah, not only did I have the, the cool pointy sideburns to come back, I had no sideburns. <laughs> and as they say, that showbiz, you know. So um, that was that was the the makeup and being on the set. I mean, go ahead. Uh, fire away and I'll fill in the blanks. So you, you know, tell tell us a little bit about your time with the hospitality that that James Dewan provided you. You know, like he made he made it, uh, you know, a seamless situation. You know, with with when you got out there, it was it was kind of special because I was you know fortunate enough to have met the cast many, many, many times over. I did I did over a dozen conventions that I hosted, uh, mostly in New York, but also did one in Philadelphia, the Philly Con, and also did the Atlanta, Georgia convention. Actually, they flew, they flew me to Atlanta. They flew me, Stevie, you know, Lance from, from Freehold to, to, to Atlanta, Georgia to host a convention. It's like, this was a dream come true, Bob. Oh, yeah. So, so I... I uh, I get the call from Roddenberry's office that they want me to be in the picture, and I'm pretty excited. And I, as I said, I knew the cast members, and I was very friendly with with James doing Jimmy to to those who are close to him. And I had to call him up to tell him, Jimmy, I'm going to see you. I'm going to be on the set. It's going to be great, you know. And, and James doing said, you know, where are you staying, Steve? By the way, he he didn't say, where are you staying, Steve? He, <laughs> he, he, he didn't really have a Scottish accent. No. Anyway, he says, you know, where are you staying? And I said, I don't know. I'm from Freehold, New Jersey. I guess I'll get a hotel near the studio. That makes sense, right? He said, no, you're not. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, you send me your itinerary and I will pick you up at the airport and you will stay with me and Wendy, this is wife, and the kids. Chris, Chris, Chris and Monty. So not only did I get into the most unbelievable experience of being a kid growing up watching Star Trek, getting to be in Star Trek. But I actually got to live with Scotty. With Scotty. That is awesome. <laughs> and it was just it was just a marvelous experience. And, and and I know you and I have known each other 
it for some years, so you're not going to dwell on it. But some some other interviewers that I've not known or you know call me up and they find out that I I live with James doing during the filming, and I want to talk about the makeup, you know, like we were talking about mm-hmm. and, and the costume, and and all they keep going back to is so, so tell me, so you you, you live with Scotty? Yeah, 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 I live with Jimmy, but then. On the set one day, one of the things, yeah, how was it like living with Scotty? <laughs> when they put the, they just wouldn't let me talk about the cool, the cool making the motion picture. They just want to know what it was like to live with, with Scotty. You know what James doing? <laughs> well, you did, you did have also a special dinner though too. And we have to, you know, we have to bring that. that. People, I, I don't know how how it was when, when you grew up watching television shows and movies. Did you imagine that everybody in the movie were best friends and hung out all together all the time? Did you picture that? You would, you would hope so, but I, yeah. but, but as I grew up, I realized, yeah, it's never, it's not quite as harmonious as that. And unfortunately, when a show ends, they don't have those annual reunions of the the, the family of the set and all of that. Uh, that, 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 that that's just the thing of uh, you know wishful thinking, but. You know, I, I I know some shows are closer than others, but yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but I expected. I also, you know, didn't know how films were made when I was young, so I expected that if you were in the movie, you knew everybody in the movie. You know, and that that yeah. also doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, like you were saying, everybody is not best buddies. But James Dillon happened to be good friends with Grace Lee Whitney, Gracie, and her husband Jack Dale. And they were lovely people. I certainly knew them from the conventions. So when I was out living with the Dewins uh, back, uh, you know, during filming, uh, we got a call one day from from Grace, you know, or maybe it was on the set. I don't exactly remember. I will have to tweak my memory from my memoir that I'm writing. And and she invited us to dinner at her house. So we piled in the car, me, Jimmy, Wendy, the kids, and went over to Grace Lee Whitney's house for dinner. And she made spaghetti and meatballs. And, you know, that's a pretty standard kind of fare. But let me tell you, I don't know if it was because it was Gracie Whitney or, or the moment where they were really that good. But to this day, they were the best spaghetti and meatball meal that I had ever eaten. And then no other meatballs and spaghetti that I've ever had compared to the ones that Grace put out on the table. Well, they weren't from a replicator, that's why, you know, even though she had, uh, I, I guess, I guess she, she had graduated to a transporter chief from a yeoman. Well, remember, she was a yeoman at one time, so she, you know, did deliver. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. When she was doing the movie, she had gotten a promotion. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, so that was, that was also special. So, so getting to know these people on a, on a personal level, uh, I don't know. I almost take it for granted, Bob, you know, because I wanted to be in show business and this, I was in show business and I was hanging out with the people in show business and I never asked for autographs. Once in a while, I might have one from each of them. I might somewhere, but it wasn't like I was a, I was a fan. I made a concerted effort to show them that I was a working actor, certainly not their equal, but, but I was treated as an equal. I was working in the business and I wasn't a fan Right to pose for pictures and ask for autographs, and I don't have pictures with these people. Of course, nobody had, you know, cell phones with with five cameras on the back anymore either. You know, back then. Yeah, yeah. Which would have made it maybe possible to do, but the only picture I have is is the one that they shot on the set. They did some publicity pictures because I was 
involved with Star Trek and, and uh, those conventions. They did shoot a picture of me, and and they were they were trying to do. There were several photographers, and they were doing these pictures pretty rapidly during a break. And they would put one cast member with the special extra. You know, maybe Susan Sackett would be with somebody, and maybe uh, you know a, a guy named Bill Hickey who was just a, a super fan who came to all the conventions and he kind of looked, he was a school teacher in Pennsylvania passed away not that long ago and, and I, I'd miss him. He was a wonderful gentleman and he looked kind of like a young Captain Kirk and he was dressed in it, you know, the TOS, you know, gold, you know, mm-hmm. you know shirt and, and he was posed with somebody and, and so everybody that was there, and everybody, but these special guests that were on the set were given this opportunity to get it posed picture with one of the cast members but because i knew gracie she jumped into the picture with me and jimmy doing and i'm one of the only ones i believe that has two cast members in my publicity picture from star trek the motion picture which you can see on yeah if you type in you know steven steven lance star trek um you can google my picture you can you can find stuff about me and also I, yeah and i think that publicity photo also includes what race you were, or I know there was there was even even you were unsure what what ultimately you were supposed to be, were well, you a yeah, vegan they, or you know I don't think any that's interesting to, to say that to bring that up because when I was you know already with the short Star Trek haircut and my pointed sideburns sitting in the makeup chair and Freddie Phillips said well sit down you're a bumphead okay so now I'm a bumphead all right then. Later on in the conversations, they said, I'm a vegan from the planet Vega. Uh, I don't know if that means we, you know, we're vegetarians, but <laughs> you were supposed to, you know, be from the planet Vega, which uh, is owned, I think, now by General Motors. They <laughs> and so that's what I had on all my publicity for years and years and years. And then found out that they had uh, included me which is really special again uh, to be on the on the wiki the Star Trek wiki uh, memory alpha and there I am and there's a picture of me and it says Roundodite Crewman Roundodite Crewman no one ever said that word when I was in Star Trek on the set at Jimmy's house at Gracie's house back on the set back in you know another convention they never heard it so I didn't know that I was a Rondodite yeah, memory alpha and my publicity for years and years including the IMDB um, listing that I have and you can, your friends can look me up on IMDB and, and uh, there's, there are two Stephen Lances I don't know who the other gentleman is but I'm the, the one that usually comes up first and I'm standing by a microphone and sound booth because I do uh, voiceover work so that's me and, and in there uh on that IMDb, it said for years, uh, Stephen Lance, uh, vegan, you know, vegan crew member. And only recently had my publicist, uh, Lisa Doodlehead Productions, uh, go ahead and make that change. And she said, it wasn't easy. You have to prove that you want, you know, you have to prove that they're making a change. The IMDb is pretty strict on, mm-hmm. on making, you know, making changes because they don't want anybody fooling around with the, you know, the, the truth and the, the canon. Of, of what's being shown on their site and she was you know able to make that happen and thank you uh, Lisa if you're out there listening and uh, it 
for those that had uh, or have the Star Trek, the motion picture uh, soundtrack LP, yeah. uh, which uh, I had for many years, sadly was damaged during the, the, the flood that I experienced in Superstorm Sandy, but uh, had for many years, had the sleeve, um, actually I think I replaced the sleeve because I being the moron that I was, I cut the, the sleeve included on the one side of it included all the alien races that were also supposed to be featured in the movie. Some were in uniform, but some were like in ceremonial. I don't know what was intended or if that was even intended originally for the motion picture, but there were Kazerites. There were, I, I thought they would pronounce Randorites, but there was Randorites, which I guess kind of you looked a little like, you know, um, I, I guess that would fit. Um, well, the main, the Arcturians. Main, the, main vegan, the main vegan, the main Randorite was mm-hmm. Billy Van Zandt. Uh, Billy was the, the alien aboard the uh, crew. You probably remember the scene when Kirk comes back from Beecher and enhances his jacket to, 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 you know, to the alien, Billy. And that... He was the main, you know, Ronda Wright. He actually had, they didn't do it for me, I'm sorry they didn't, but he actually had, like, these cool cat's eye, full eye contact lenses that he had to wear. And I didn't get those, because I was far enough back. Yes, I remember that scene, which is rarely seen in one version. I mean, I remember seeing that scene where I, I think he's the one who says when Decker is relieved of command, uh for Kirk to be announced as the, the captain. And he's the one who says, well, what about, what about commander, you know, what about commander Decker? He's been with this ship every step of the way. And then O'Horus comes in and says, uh, Ensign, our chances of survival have just doubled or something like that. You know, like basically. Yes. 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 But the album sleeve had all these aliens, and I know one was an Arcturian who looked like like his face had melted. He looked really cool. Um, so, and we never got to see these aliens again. Although we, they did, Migo made little action figures out of those. But to get them, you had to, you know, kill somebody because they were only sold overseas. Um, oh, really? Yeah, you would get, you know, they had Kirk. Spock, McCoy, Decker, Scotty, and, 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 you know, the usuals, but, uh, the others that they were supposed to release never were really released in this country. And they had the Klingon. I think there was a Megarite, uh, Kazerite, um, uh, a Saurian, which was more like your traditional alien, like, but he was purple instead of like lizard, like green. He was purple. Cause I was over the years able to, managed to buy almost all of them over the year, including the Arcturian, who looked really, really neat. Um, but uh, Well, that explains the, the big mounds of dirt in your backyard. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were expensive. They were like... Yeah, you know, right. Expensive. You know, people you had to off in order to get them. Yeah, yeah. They were like in Italy or something like that or, you know, different places. And, and they found their way to conventions, so, you know. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's really, oh, that's really, that's really neat. I, I envy you. So, actually, the Rondonite name showed up on the record album. We yes. Yeah. But I never had the record album. I never knew. Nobody ever told me. And there you go. So, it's now corrected. And uh, we have, uh, once again, uh, righted a wrong. 
Yes. <laughs> now, did you get a chance to talk to any of the other extras and in, in, at the time and compare notes? Like, hey, how long was your makeup, or what? Do you, how did you get here, or you know? Uh... Well, I'll tell you. Well, here's something funny, and of course, I can talk about this now because I wasn't married at the, at the time, and and I I was on the set, and the makeup, by the way is not as uncomfortable as one might think. And, and I didn't have a whole face makeup. Mm-hmm. So mine was, was very much, I, I wanted, you know, when I went there, I could have just been, you know, Steve Lance, and you would have seen me on the movie screen as Steven Lance. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want that. My favorite actor is Boris Karloff. And, he, of course, his, his most famous role is the Frankenstein monster. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what it was like to go under that kind of makeup and, and have your features completely subdued. And when I got there, I told Freddie, you know, that, you know, that I wanted to do something like that. And it, that's how it changed from being a Vulcan to, to that character. But the makeup piece fits over your head and around your, over your nose, around your, underneath, glued in under your eyelids, and then around where your sideburns might be, and then tucks into the back. And then, of course, the hair that's in there covers a lot of it. And those hairs are, I'm told put into the foam uh, a piece like one hair at a time with a special needle. It's kind of very involved, and and because of that, um, I was able to show the bottom of my face. You know, from my my eyebrows, you know, my, not my eyebrows, but from my you know, my eyes down was my face. So I felt pretty normal, and the makeup was fairly comfortable that you don't realize you have it on. So to answer your question, I remember once during a, during a break. You know, there was a, you know, a, a, you know, a hot-looking crewman, and I said, you know, hey, you know, how, how are you doing? And she kind of looked at me and then walked away. And I go, she, well, what, you know, what's that all about? And then I went uh, to uh, to the restroom and saw myself as I passed the mirror. I go, oh, I get it. So the, the uh, I didn't get to talk to uh, to her about her makeup. Um, well, maybe her race was, you know, not friendly with renderites. You never know. Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I remember that moment because I still felt like Steve Lance, but it didn't look like Steve Lance. And, and it was, you know, it, my karma was, was gone. And, uh, but the other, a lot of the other extras that I knew didn't go under makeup. Oh, and okay. Because you know, David, David Gerald, if you look at the, is David Gerald. Mm-hmm. And, and Mrs. Wise, Robert Weiss's wife is Mrs. Wise, you know? And, and so none of, none of them, went under the makeup. So I really didn't, that's a great question, Bob, not ever been asked. I don't know that I, that I talked to any of the other aliens. Well, certainly Billy Van Sant, who I was introduced to by, um, by George Decay. But, but by the way, for those, and, and I, you know, I, I'm Billy's friend because I'm Billy's friend. But for those of you who might think the name sounds familiar, his brother is Steve Van Sant. And, and that's just, he does another kind of work. Billy does acting and writing. But um, Billy was on the set as the head right? And George Decay knew us both, knew me from the conventions, and came up to me on the set during one of the, the breaks or the lighting. You know, it takes a long time. And he goes, uh, oh, oh, Steve, you're, you're from New Jersey, right? <laughs> yeah. goes, oh, oh, I want you to meet somebody. Billy, Billy is, is also from New Jersey. I'll introduce you. And, and George Decay is the one that introduced me to Billy Vincent. Oh, neat. And, and I go, okay, New Jersey. I mean, we're not Texas, but we're a you know, large enough state. Yeah. And he could have lived, you know, 
and just a lot of towns in that 20 minutes. So yeah. The point was, we were close by, so we could actually see each other after, you know, the film. Yeah. You know. So that was neat. Um, but I didn't ask him about that makeup. But as I said, we remained friends, and and Billy later played a character, I believe it was Bob, in Jaws 2. And do you remember the, the movie Jaws 2? Vaguely, yeah, it's been a while. He was he was the kid that had the, the Polish cap uh, in the film. Oh, okay, the okay, it's been a while since I've seen. Yeah, yeah. And, and he doesn't get eaten by the shark, but they they thought originally Billy was going to be eaten by the shark, and and they made a, a full body lookalike dummy of him, hmm. um, you know, to be eaten by the, the, you know Bruce, the, the mechanical jaws, but but they gave it to him, and he he said that he needs to keep it on his bed in his bedroom. <laughs> I was going to say, I would hope that he got to keep that. So, yeah, you know, because yeah, what are they going to do with it? Now. You know, <laughs> I, I, I've got to, I've got to reach out to him and, and, and speak to him again. But that was, that was where uh, that dummy from Jaws went. I always, you know, teased him because the he, he did he didn't when the helicopter crashed and, and all of that. Yeah, he was clinging to the rock uh, mm-hmm. at the end when they when they killed the Jaws. I think he was the you know. His famous line in the film was, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, that was a big one. Well, you had a wonderful experience with this, and I am so happy that you you are sharing it again with, with a new audience. Um, but tell us what, uh, tell us a little bit about your memoirs, and I know you're you're looking to get other fans to reach out to you who may I, have uh, I, I, been... I'm really glad you asked, because we, we did talk about, we did talk about this at, Earlier on in our, our discussions, I am finally and, and sadly, I should say, writing my memoir. I've waited too long. You know, life sometimes gets in the way, Bob, mm-hmm. and and I kept putting it off. And people that I really wanted to talk to, and not just actors who passed away, like James Doohan and Grace Lee Whitney, but some of those other people I talked about, like Bill Hickey, who I, I just loved him, and I so couldn't wait to talk to Bill and talk to him about you know, the conventions and, and the stuff. And, and, and I missed that opportunity. So I'm, I'm asking your audience, if anybody is, uh, is it probably they'd have to be in their, their 50s or 60s and attended any of those early conventions in New York City, uh, the Star Trek, the first one I did was uh, the fourth annual uh, Al Schuster Star Trek convention. Then I did all of the TriStar conventions, including Star Trek America, Bicentennial 10, Star Trek 75, I did all of those in, in Philadelphia and Atlanta. If any were at those conventions and remember seeing me uh, on stage, uh, back then, by the way, to, to give a memory job, it, it's a long story for another show, but my stage name, and it's crazy how it happened, it happened in college, my name got uh, changed to Heesh, H-E-A-S-H. It was a, a misspelling, it's a neat story, but anyway, I was the host of the conventions, my name was Heesh, and that's who the host of the conventions were. If you go to the program books, it says Master of Ceremonies, Heesh, H-E-A-S-H. Mm-hmm. And I, I used that one name for a long time. I thought, well, you know, hey, there's, you know, there was a guy, Sabu, a, a kid actor that made, you know, the people Baghdad. He used one name. And, of mm-hmm. course, Superman used one name. And, and God uses one name. So I thought, well, Heesh would have been okay. But after a while, I, I decided I needed to go back to my did, but if you look up uh, in your program books and find Heesh, that's me, and I would love to talk to you, and you can write to me at 
Stephen Lance at Juno.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-L-A-N-C-E at Juno, J-U-N-O.com. And say, hey, I heard you on uh, the interview with Bob, and I also uh, was at that convention, and I'd love to share my thoughts and memories. Because I want to know, Bob, what they saw, what they remember from their vantage point. Because looking out in the audience, I saw the convention very differently than they did. Sure, And yeah. I missed stuff. Did I do something clever or funny or stupid that I that I don't remember because I didn't see me doing it? I, it was a lot of time that I had to fill, you know, fill space when an actor was late from getting, you know, getting downstairs from the, the hotel. Or Bill Shatner stayed at another hotel and used to have to be, you know, brought over in a limo, and he might be stuck in traffic, and I'd have to do that if we routine or kill time. And 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 they were there. And if you saw this, I would love to talk to you, and I certainly will. I'm sure the stories will make it into the memoir, and I certainly promise to put your names in the book's acknowledgement, and then you can tell everybody, well, Steve was in the crowd scene in Star Trek The Motion Picture, and I'm in the crowd scene in his acknowledgement in his book, and I would love to talk to your, your listeners about that. Thanks for asking. Well, that's great, and I, I hope that the audience, you know, hears this and reaches out to you and shares those experiences from the past and can you know give you the uh added background that that you're looking for because i bet they have some really interesting stories to tell even after all these years i'm, I'm sure they do and if they didn't get the address they can write to you and i you can forward it up to me absolutely well thank you so much steve for joining us uh, for this segment i look forward to uh you know clearly talking to you again so uh, well, thank you so much i always look forward to it It's a wrap. On Friday, January 26, 1979, 124 days after it all began on the previous August 7th, Star Trek The Motion Picture finally wrapped principal photography. Applause, laughter, and slaps on backs greeted this final take for Bill Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly, the Three Musketeers, as Robert Wise has affectionately nicknamed them, when the three leads said their final line at 4.50 that afternoon. However, cameras continued to roll well past 10 o'clock that evening as Wise completed scenes with Stephen Collins, Decker, and Persis Kambata, Ilea. So finally, after a grueling movie process producing something like this, and, and you got to figure, th- this was... An amazing project on so many levels. This was a huge project. Never has there been something of Star Trek of this enormity come before. That there was a bit of relief on the actor's part. Yeah, there must have been. I mean, it was, um, it was something that had been building up for a long time. So this was, this was the first big budget movie for Star Trek. And it was, you know, as they always, as they came out later saying it's one of the most expensive movies ever made. So yeah, it was just, Amazing. So they, so this was like, like it was a triumph for them. Okay. Finally finished filming the principal photography. So yeah. And the movie came out later that year. So they, they really were working on it hard to get it done by that December date, which, which had already been set. This, the release date. That's right. It said most of the crew had a, had a mixture of relief because of the overly long shooting schedule. And we know that their days and nights were extended. The crew itself were moving on to other things. The actors needed to take a break. It even says Gene Roddenberry took his own shore leave 
Yes, and it, and it said Robert Wise was the one who worked the most. He actually did work a lot of long hours and weekends on this. So yeah, a lot a lot of work went into this one. They said Robert Wise and his wife went f- to Vancouver for, for vacation right afterwards. So I mean, people just said it's over. Let's take a break. Yeah, e- definitely. Even though we're talking January, mm-hmm. they still needed just essentially a year later the movie would come out. We know December, so there was a massive, massive gap between the end of the filming. Instead of doing all the editing, everything else, they said that's it. Let's just. Let's just clear our minds for a little while. Yeah, take a break, and then, but then still, yeah, for some people, the work still wasn't finished yet at this time. And so the article talks about primarily about all the different breaks that the actors and producers would take because of the exhaustion level of producing this. Yeah, because it, it would, there was so much of it, and it seems like that. I mean, the you know the actors did a lot, but there were so many effects in this movie that that they had to do after this. Yes. I mean that the visual effects were just. Almost like the star of the movie. There was so much. The funny thing is it talks about who's taking a break, who's doing what. Perseus Kambata wanted to spend the next several months growing her hair back. Oh, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Stephen Collins went back to New York to his residence. He does have offers for other movies, but it didn't say he was expect uh, taking in anything. But it said Bill Shatner was going back to his wife and – Getting ready to go on a live tour, his Star Traveler tour. Now, I think that's funny. Bill Shatner was the hardest working man in Star Trek even in the 70s. I mean, we look at him now and how many conventions he goes to, how he just can't sit still at home, how he's constantly touring. But when you look at how so many others said, I need a break, Bill says, no, I got more things to do. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, they well, a lot of them still went on to other projects, other work. But but yeah, Bill was staying busy. I mean, he obviously likes that. He 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 kept getting jobs. I mean, good yeah. for him. And the Star Traveler was something that he put together with his wife. It was a self promotion tour. Yes, and calling it Star Traveler, you know, he was promoting himself as Captain Kirk. I mean, I mean, he had finally, you know, accepted like this is Star Trek that it's the biggest thing he's done so far, so he can promote it. So I mean, because it it's what the fans want to see. And we know that during this time. Leonard Nimoy did write a one-man show called Vincent, which is available to view because we've yes. we viewed it before fairly recently. Was it online? It, it was on a streaming service. It wasn't mm-hmm. on Netflix or something, or might have been sure. on YouTube. Might have been, but yeah. Um, so, so the one-man play that he wrote, and I even remember back then he promoted it. He did interviews on TV uh, to to promote Vincent. And, um, and I never got to see it back then. But, uh, but yeah, now that we've seen it, I, I mean, I thought it was great. I mean, just, uh, he was the only actor in it. And so, I mean, he knew all his lines and he, he was awesome at it. He could just, he was, he was going through it, spinning it out, had all the emotion and, and everything in it. It was wonderful. Yes. So it said that, uh, Bill and Leonard both did have one man shows that they were involved with. And I think it's interesting because, we look at these star logs and they say things like the producers, if this is successful, plan on making a Star Trek 2. So there already was some kind of idea that this might keep going on. But I think the actors were wondering if it would be successful because they were already planning on doing something immediately after this. Because it says that only Bill and Leonard had something immediately lined up that they did on their own. Everybody else just took a break and 
see see what would happen afterwards. See if they got calls for anything else. Yeah, I think Bill and Leonard were the ones that knew. Well, well, they they just they just wanted to create work for themselves. They wanted to stay busy, and the other actors were thinking they were they were waiting to see if they if they get any other acting jobs, mm-hmm. which is fine. I think that's really a lot of that's the actors' life. They get well, they they do go to auditions when they can. Whenever something comes up, they they do. But yeah, it was neat that Bill and Leonard could um do do these do these things that they wanted to do. And I think Leonard was was always that type of go getter. He wanted to to um create this this play. It was something that he was interested in doing. So I think out of the original crew, now correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Bill and Leonard were the only ones that enjoyed doing stage work. I don't recall anyone else doing things for the stage, either their own shows or characters that's interesting yeah i haven't really heard them talk about it much except i mean you know nichelle was actually a stage performer before she did Star she was Trek. a dancer she was and a singer and yes. um yeah and I, I never really heard that she wanted to go back to that after star trek nope so yeah deforest were, kelly mm-hmm. he just likes staying home with his wife and it, now deforest kelly said that that he's happy doing nothing absolutely he, yeah he could just absolutely. stay home yeah and and that's the gist of the article is everybody likes taking a break except for bill who's a super spearheader and then leonard with making this production as well but it said that the the actual enterprise wasn't uh or i should say the bridge wasn't taken apart it was cleaned and covered with clean, soft cloths and set aside for whatever further adventures await it. Yeah, yeah. The way Susan Sackett wrote this, so she, she thinks they were, they were preserving the set for, for, for the sequel, which was a good idea. And, but you know, if they, and, and I think it was some of the same sets, but you know, they changed them a lot, repainted them and everything for, for the second movie. But you know, the, and of course they didn't know at this time whether or not there would be a sequel, but, but we know that the sequel had a, a much lower budget, like a fourth of the budget of this one. So, yeah, so they reused a lot of the sets. They did as much as they could. But, yeah, that is that is neat to see that they did save the sets for this because they thought they might need them later. And also, and Walter Koenig wrote, you know, he wrote Chekhov's Enterprise, which was his, he was keeping a journal during the making of the movie. Loved it, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. That was another thing that he did. He's, he started getting more into writing, too. But yeah, it, w- it That's was. That's right. During this era, book. he got more into writing. Not even just Star Trek. He started doing, in the eighties, he started doing his own series, his own characters, non Star Trek items. Yeah, he did mm-hmm. other things. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, he did more of that than than. But the again, acting. he's a homebody. He's a collector. That's why he took a break and was happy as can be. He collects big little books. A lot yeah, of yeah, a lot of stuff older like that. memorabilia type things, non Trek things. I mean. Later on, he started collecting a lot of Trek things, you know, things with his image on it. But uh, interesting view into into the lives of the Star Trek actors post-filming the motion picture. All right, as always, we wrap it up by talking about one of the advertisements that are listed in the magazine, in the classifieds. And this was always one of my favorite things to just lay back and dream about. Think, thinking about things I wish that my parents would buy me in Starlog magazine, Famous Monsters of Filmly magazine. All magazines at this time had classifieds. USS Enterprise Bridge Blueprints. Here it is, the original detailed set, complete on 10 fold-out sheets, drawn by Michael McMaster. 
Now, why does that name sound familiar? Previously in Starlog Magazine, he was the first fan that was ever acknowledged in a Starlog obituary. And do you remember he was making, or he did make, a bridge set, a two-scale set that he would bring to conventions? I mean, we were talking late 70s, and making blueprints and building an Enterprise bridge to share with other fans? I think it's amazing when people do that now. If you did that pre-internet days, that's nothing short of incredible. Yeah, he he was someone who, who was a fan and created his own models. I mean, all this. Send today, only six ninety five for the 10-sheet packet. Here's the postage. Third class postage is a dollar five, or first class postage a dollar fifty five. Not much difference. <laughs> this was the era of fans were passionate about Star Trek to the point where they dedicated themselves to make unique things like this and then share it with other fans. Yeah, that that is so cool. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.